Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 448. How you doing, guys? I hope you're well. This week's guest is Sarah Soleimani, who I'm a huge fan of. Any regular listeners of the podcast will know him and her is one of my favourite comedies of all time. I was incredibly excited to see that she's working with Steve Coogan on a new project. So I wanted to talk about all of it. Like it's a project that they've created together. And yeah, I wanted to just have a chat really. And we had a bloody lovely one. It really, it flew by, it gets quite heavy quite early. And then it gets light and we have fun. We get heavy again in different places. It's one of those classic distraction pieces where, I don't know, man, I love it when it can drift so freely from really serious subjects to really silly subjects and Sarah was amazing for that um thank you all for the love on last week's episode with Kay Tempest yep it's one of the best we've done it was amazing Kay's been on a load of times and they've honestly never felt more or to me felt more themselves than in this most recent one so I was so pleased to get that across to you guys and I was so pleased with the reaction that you guys all had. I'm not going to ramble on too much. As ever, speechdevelopmentrecords.com for all your uh, your merch needs. Summer is here, or the, the sun started anyway. And obviously we've got, genuinely, we've got t-shirts. And you'll think, yeah, that's the thing a merch store has. We've got vests. Yeah, that's quite... St- that's 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 quite merch story. We've got sunglasses. All right, that's still yeah, that's fair enough. We've got Scroobius Pip swimsuits. Okay, it's not a normal merch store. I'm not a normal mum. I'm a cool mum. Patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip is where you can support the podcast for a dollar a month, and Twitch.tv forward slash forward slash Scroobius Pip. Or maybe Scroobius Pip Yo, yeah, forward slash Scroobius Pip Yo, is where you can, can watch m- me on Twitch. I'm on there all the time, having a wonderful time. I did a Words Wednesday episode th- the other week, um, where I go over all, all all lyrics and that. It should still be there to view on demand, and it's all free. So come and join the family. If you're confused at what Twitch is, don't be confused. It's j- just a, st- a streaming platform. You can either go on the website or download the app all very simple and straightforward let's get on with the podcast shall we this is the wonderful sarah soleimani I'm joined today by Sarah Soleimani. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Where are you? You're in LA, right? Yes. I live in Laurel Canyon. Amazing. In Los Angeles. And how's it been out there in these weird, this this weird past few years, I guess? There's been a lot going on globally, but also, you know specifically in america america's had a lot of issues england's had a lot of issues how's how have you been in this time wow thanks for asking well america is a place of extremes yeah and i think when i arrived about five years ago it was straight into trump's election victory 
and you know it was as terrifying and extreme and uh confusing as as it, as it probably was for a lot of people around the world who didn't you know support him but with that came an incredibly exhilarating resistance movement yeah and so to live in america is to negotiate the both extremes of the country and to embrace everything that it that it does have to offer which includes incredible resilience incredible organization very inspiring people very inspiring attitude and we call it sort of optimism and like that can do attitude but i think it's something more than that it's about imaginative capacity mm-hmm. and i see it in so many different dimensions of my life here and living in california is a very sort of specific experience specific yeah. american experience and the depth of imaginative capacity that I feel here has been a a real gift and has informed my work, my life, my relationships. So I'm very grateful to my host country for everything it's given me. I love that. Do you feel the industry that you're in kind of made it more of a a shock? Because everyone I know in LA, because I come from the music industry, they're either musicians or because I've moved into acting – they're screenwriters, they're directors, they're producers, they're actors. And it feels like they're worlds that it felt almost unimaginable that Trump was mm. going to win. And not to put this on America, it felt unimaginable that, that Brexit was going to happen or that, mm-hmm. that Boris would be our leader kind of thing. So do you think the, those industries made it more surprising, but then also you could directly see positive artistic reaction, whether that be from comedians, from writers, from from activists? Do you think that was... You're kind of in the mix of it. Yeah, it's like any big sort of shock to the culture or to the psyche. Even if you think about 9-11, no one really really talked about the Middle East. No one really understood what fundamentalist Islam was. You just start educating yourself. And with Trump, it was like, Mm. wait, what? Are we getting nastier? Are we getting more extreme? What is what does it mean? And so I think people did start asking questions and certainly in, in my world, for example, my show Ridley Road on BBC, and I've been trying to get that made for years. And then when we sort of had this lurch to what could can be considered both in England and America, a, a sort of a, a, an embrace of more sort of extreme right-wing views, my show made sense in that context. And you see, one advantage of, li- I wow. live sort of in a fascist dystopia because I've, I you know, studied politics. I'm obsessed with, with how democracy flourishes and how it dies and how fragile it is. And so it's yeah. quite textbook what's happening. And when you understand history, it isn't, mm. it isn't so sort of shattering because it's sort of the same pattern, whether it's in Afghanistan, in the mountains, or in West Virginia, in uh, America, or in Russia. And in fact, Fiona Hill, I just read her book, There's Nothing For You Here, which is a fantastic read. I think it's the best read of 2022, which explains she comes from the Northeast from this sort of post-industrial ex-mining town and how these towns are just neglected and sees the pattern. She marries someone from West Virginia and then she ends up becoming a Russian expert and she advises Trump in the Russian inquiry and how it's the same conditions of these neglected places that become very vulnerable mm. to the sort of strong man. Yeah. I think history is an amazing thing to inform writing and particular character writing because history sh- shows us a depth of character. I was literally, before we came on here, I was f- foolishly arguing with someone on Instagram because um, they were they were saying how the West has believed the propaganda about Russia 
and essentially saying Russia were the good guys, but the way they were arguing it was saying, well, you're British. Britain's done all of this in history. And it was kind of easy to go back and go, no, yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. We're not the good guys either. (laughs) That, (laughs) That doesn't make Russia the good guys. That doesn't make this situation the good guys. And just because there is historical evidence of fascism in Ukraine, that doesn't mean that Ukraine is a fascist state that is now having to be fought against and so on and so forth. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's when you start to look at things, you have to acknowledge Mm. that your own heritage, from most countries, your own (laughs) heritage is drenched in blood. Therefore, you can't think as simply as, well, they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. It's like, no, it's far more nuanced. And I think that's important in characters, in character writing as well. You don't want to write right. a show where there's just well, here's the it. good guy, here's the bad guy. You want that nuance and that fluidity. That that's exactly what inspired the characters in Ridley Road was I'd seen, especially in stories with Jewish protagonists, you know, these sort of zombified, monstrous Nazi robots who have no humanity. And so the, the characterization was was almost with the hindsight of history. And so you put onto them this psychotic, bleak lack of humanity. But of course, the truth is no one sets out to be a monster of history. Everyone is set, everyone thinks they are doing the, no. the, the best thing in the, in the circumstance they find them, which is actually a bit more complicated to access. And so with my characters in Ridley Road, you know, they, they've had all different life experiences. One character's had a child taken away. She's living in poverty and she's promised this this mythical sense of getting a country back. You can never really get a country back, even mm. if you succeed in removing a fort, whether it's a colonial force or whether it's a, an occupation. You can never go back. You can develop it forward. You can evolve it forward, but you carry the legacy of everything that's come before with you. And so this is quite a it's quite a mythical notion that people are still clinging to that it was better before. It's worse now because of them. And anything that has that rhetoric is very dangerous. And we will always be confronted with that. That's the other thing about democracy for me is it's not never again. And it's and that's the end of that chapter. We will always be in a situation where we'll be vulnerable. And we just we just have to keep the body politic healthy mm. with education and housing and healthcare. And so that those views become more and more absurd and we can see them as being absurd. Mm. Yeah, I think also a, a, a thing that I've kind of come to, or I think has come to the fore recently, particularly in the pandemic, is the way we've adapted to make the, the meta of how successful a country or a society is to be purely a financial thing, rather than, as you say, an educational thing, uh, a personal thing, a happiness thing, uh, overall, you know, the wealth gap being smaller rather than simply what's the income of this nation or what's the, how does this compare to the rest of the world? And again, it's another one that it's, it's a far more complicated way of weighing Mm -hmm. where a country is and where we are in a society. But um, it's the only important ways really, you know, otherwise it's not an accurate Mm -hmm. metric. It's an odd one. But anyway, I I, want to talk about your new show. I want to talk about past shows. Um, But first of all, I made a note that about five years ago now, so maybe just before or just after you moved to LA, I think it was maybe just after you moved to LA, I asked a mutual friend of ours to ask you to come on my podcast and they just said no to asking you, Um, (laughs) which I thought was 
quite outrageous. And that person is Emmy Award winner, Mr. Brett Goldstein, um, a, a, a legend, a dear friend of mine. He's a wonderful man. So I'll, normally I'll rewind all the way back and things like that. But I want to start by talking about Chivalry, your new show uh, that you've 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 co-written and co-starring alongside Dave Coogan, because I've watched the first couple of episodes and I adored it and it fascinates me as as a process because it's a really it's a tough subject to write about do you want to kind of explain what the the show's about and and why you wanted to 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 write Um, about this yeah so chivalry is about two people steve's character cameron who is this sort of old school movie producer who's you know been making films for years and years a lot of money has a lot of power he's successful and has probably had a journey where money and power has come quite easily to him to the point where he doesn't even think of it as being money and power it's just his job and he's got this film which people are calling too sexist to release and so he needs the help of a quote-unquote feminist woke filmmaker me uh bobby and she's sort of drafted in to sort of make less sexist this film and they then they're and they're working together and um and then they kind of get closer and sort of surprise themselves with with their connection and it was yeah it, it started me and steve did a film called greed with michael winterbottom and me too had just happened and yes. um we, we talked about it and 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 we would you know, have debates about it, and he played devil's advocate, and we'd kind of hash out whether it, what, what it was, you know, whether it'd gone too far, what it meant, what the implications were, and it, and it just we realised that we were sort of having a dialogue which I think a lot of people wanted to have, and we decided that we should do a show about it and get two people who are sort of opposite sides of the spectrum just talking, and that's what mm. we did. It's so it 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 felt so real and relatable in these first episodes, um, and it was a thing even just before m- me too. I think it, uh, one of my my best friends in the world is is mm. Kelly Marcel, yeah. who's an amazing screenwriter. And there was a period, kind of just before she got to where she, she was now, that mm. she was called in on so many scripts to be the kind of s- silent read through uh adjuster to 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 punch things up and to get things to a place that that people were happy with and it seems crazy that that was even seen as the solution rather than make more films from amazing female writers was to make the same films from the same men but get a woman to give it the once over just to give you kind of a thumbs up or make you feel it's acceptable or you've you've done your due yeah Diligence. It's, You've got it's a, a woman to it's look a at bind, it. You know, I ha, I have found myself in, and and it took me several projects of sort of failing at the task at hand, which is to like do the woman pass or you know make funny the woman's role, and mm-hmm. and you can't, and I could never really do it with any success because if the story is sort of inherently skewed a certain way or on a certain mm-hmm. lens, then then it's very there's very little moves you can make to elevate character or to yeah. allow her pers- enough perspective to make a funny observation or that. so but but it took quite a long time of, of of being that person to go no I just actually have to just create my own stuff and that's how I will 
yeah. let my voice and 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 my my taste, I think, in comedy. And I mean, I mean, Steve and I have quite similar taste in what makes us laugh and what doesn't. Yeah. So it was a good, it was a really good collaboration to put under the microscope these these big issues that are quite thorny. And 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 you know, me too. At its core, is about pain and about trauma and abuse. And so we didn't ever want to undermine what it was because it's so necessary and so overdue and it it brought up so much stuff for me and so it was a very fine balancing act between giving breath and and giving permission for audience to laugh without undermining what it was at its core well that was it I, i i wanted to know about the the writing process and how kind of nervous you are i guess because it's a very real subject but the way you've managed to get it is the right balance between exposing all the bullshit of the industry and not being too kind of pious and it it has to have that that right balance the fact that your character at points in i think it's only in the second episode realizes that they've maybe acted inappropriately or acted harshly with someone and has to take a step back rather than it simply being well here's all the men and here's the woman to to put them all in line it's it shows more of a uh a balance to be found, I guess, you know? Yeah. And that was, it made the writing process sort of extra strenuous because there was a version of the show, which was Steve being like, you know, saying all the wrong things and me being like, Oh, you silly old sexist. You can't say that anymore. Uh, And like, that was my worst fear (laughs) because I've sort of done that. And that's, that's safer because, because then, you know, the woman is, the moral arbiter and the man and, and actually that's what you've seen a lot of sitcoms is like and the man gets to have this kind of wild anarchic morality that just spins around and, and everyone orbits around them and just tries to kind of um, modify them and, and and I didn't want that and, and Steve's <laughs> yeah. already written Partridge and Lynn so you've covered that you've covered that relationship already you don't need to just bring and them I into never, Hollywood I, I mean never <laughs> Felicity Montague is just just such a goddess to me but Yeah. So it was like, it was a, it was an interesting dynamic to write because they had to be like inspired by like the thirties and forties screwball comedies and they're, and they're like, they're double acts. They're like equal. So so whenever there was a funny line, like she had to have have a comeback, he had to have a comeback to that. And then, so it was just like, it was always, we always wanted it to kind of pop, but at the same time earn and not be afraid of sincerity. And that's why I was surprised with Steve because he's not afraid of not being funny. He's not afraid of being sincere or like having a moment or risking, you know, with risk, yeah. sentimentality or risks. Like, and actually, no, no, having the confidence to earn moment, real moments of poignancy. Wanda Sykes' character has a real journey in the season. And, you know, that was really, yeah. we've kind of laboured over crafting it so that hopefully audiences just uh, feel that they can have those quieter moments as well as laughing. I love it. One of the early choices I really enjoyed was that the director that your character is stepping in to punch the film up on, essentially, is a European director. And I think that was a really clever and fascinating choice because European cinema has always been amazing at pushing the boundaries and doing amazing artistic things without censorship. Mm. But then with that comes the people who can mask (laughs) their misogyny as art or their abuses are and i think i always think back to when um when irreversible came out and it blew me away after that 
there were several films I went and got as a little hungry film fan that were being posed as similarly boundary pushing art. And they were just like, there was one in particular that just didn't have the balls to call itself a porno. (laughs) It was was a porn film that didn't want to be a porn film that was pretending to be an art film and things like that do come hand in hand. So I thought, again, I'd, I'd read what the show was about as soon as that character came in, I was like, oh, this is good because this is this, this is is walking the line because it could be, it could go the direction of this was going to be this wonderful piece of art and it's now been right. hammered down by by right. the PC brigade or whatever. So it's, yeah, it was a really n- nice choice. Was that kind of key in that kind of thing rather than the easy thing of it's right. an old American, good old boy kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I think, well, we kind of played on the stereotypes of kind of the cultural stereotypes, I guess. And like Hollywood in our world, in our world, like Hollywood is just, is just trying to make as much money as possible. It's a profit driven industry Mm -hmm. that can co-opt, you know, gender politics, race politics, uh, whatever it needs to do to satisfy the market so it doesn't get kind of destroyed with its profit margins that's how it operates whereas somewhere like france which isn't such a hyper capitalist culture and actually has very has a huge cynicism on america you know they Mm. both like you say exactly to your point pride themselves on true art and uh the the auteur and the and the and the work and the art but then also can fall victim just to the same sort of like misogynistic abuse Yeah, yeah and he I guess, I think with him, I remember being really struck by Catherine Deneuve's letter, this French actress after Me Too happened. And it was like, if we're not careful, this is the death of sex, is basically what the letter was. It was like, men will never take yeah. a woman out. Yeah, I remember that. And it got it got really awkward reaction because, again, it wasn't the, the way we frame so many arguments now is us versus mm. them or we're on this side or that side. And that letter didn't support right. either. It was it was a cautionary tale as such. So it was really hard for the the clickbait or or clicks and likes and retweet type media right. to know how to react right. to. Because who are we pitching this to? You know that was an interesting talking point for us because there, there is a version of me too, which which a man can just feel really policed. And, you know, in, in the writing rooms in Hollywood, I've been in, you know, someone from a studio comes in and set, and explains at the beginning of each show, like what's appropriate and what's not. And like, if you invite someone to lunch and it's the working day, you're still at work. If you invite someone to dinner and the show's still going, you're sort of still at work, like be careful. How pro- and I remember one male writer was like, this is, this is, this is where all the best, the best ideas come at lunch or dinner. And like, I felt so, and whereas I felt like, oh, time's up. Because how many times have I been in that situation where yeah. the lines aren't clear and da da da, da and and yeah. for me with with the idea of, of sex, especially because because we're we're talking about sex, and you, you need to make the dif- the differentiation between abuse or sexual violence and actually sex and arousal and pleasure, and f- for a lot of women, Me Too isn't about less sex; it's about more sex, more pleasure but just in a way that isn't violating 
And that's the conversation about consent. Mm. And so my character, you know, she says to Sienna Miller's character, you know, we want this to be a celebration of the vagina. And Sienna Miller says, Americans don't celebrate the vagina. We celebrate Thanksgiving and Hanukkah. <laughs> and, and so we had we were just wanted to like just talk about it all really and not have anything off the table yeah i love it i love it well uh, i i i am gonna re- re- rewind back now because again living in hollywood speak of hollywood is v- 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 very far from you, you you grew up in camden right was that is that correct or in london near camden yeah in harringay yeah i grew up in harringay yeah in Haringey, and how was that? The, the was acting, writing, entertainment always on the cards for I, you. I mean, I my parents were both school, state school teachers, secondary school teachers. They met in the staff. They met at school Clapton, and they they were not in. You know, obviously, they weren't in the business or anything. And but although my dad is extremely funny, he was a huge Edward Lear fan. Uh, so your name is um, yes feels uh, sort of familiar and, and safe because we have all these books in our, in our house growing up so it was like a, it was a literary family but not showy or show busy and they wouldn't have known the first thing to get involved they didn't know you know so it was just me going to like drama classes at Mount View Theatre School in Wood Green on a Saturday morning yeah. and doing that and enjoying it and then go and then getting into the National Youth Theatre and that's where I started really and they were supportive my mum sadly passed away before I started she passed away when I was 16 so she she never really saw me as an actor or a writer or anything but my dad has you know he's got he's followed the journey and he's very he's very proud he has the he has the dvds on on his shelf but equally you know I took him to the Bridget Jones premiere and he was like well this is a bit much you know he's like he's just he's yeah he's very grounded person (laughs) I love it so so what was the kind of transition from stage to tv i guess because because you've 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 lived in both worlds and hearing that 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 start seems to have been a stage based introduction at least what was that journey how did you make your way across as such i was performing and writing plays and comedy and doing edinburgh's and characters and putting on plays about pubs and things like that and then as as an actor you sort of go where you're it's a remarkable lack of agency. It was just like I got hired, you know, you audition for things and I ended up doing sitcoms. But the theatre background, without actually realising it, was probably the best training for finding my voice for now being a TV creator that I could have hoped for because, you know, the first play I ever wrote, I was crying my eyes out and I was so moved and I was laughing. It was the funniest thing. And then I turned around and like half the audience had left and the half that were there were asleep and I was like Amazing. and rather than being totally demoralized it's like I, I thought of it like an algebraic puzzle I was like what I'm feeling is real I just mm. need them to feel what I'm feeling like that how do I do and that was like this big quest of just and then when you and, and when you start in theater you know you, first of all you realize how shit you are you, you realize how much you know you realize how far you have to go especially when you're doing scratch nights with other playwrights and their piece goes well and yours doesn't quite land or sometimes yours yeah. does and so you so it's less about you know with, with a lot of Hollywood writers they're writing like episodes of ER or Grey's Anatomy as spec scripts and sending them off and so yeah. you never quite David Mamet calls the verdict of a paying audience you don't have that kind of brutal strip down of like people in the moment reacting to your work yeah. and then 
the moment like I wrote one thing, I remember writing one thing that just exploded. It was like a stage adaptation of Chavs, the Owen Jones book, and um, Natalie Cassidy, Sonia from EastEnders yes. was in it. And she was on fire and she was just, every joke landed and the audience were laughing. We were telling a story about class and it was just like, okay, okay. You just taste that magic, even just for a bit. And you, you just never want to give it up, that fix. And so yeah. now when I'm in like Hollywood writers rooms or I'm creating my own shows, it's this being a slave. It's not about my expression. It's not about me as an artist. It's being a slave to the audience and how you give them a good ride is sort of my journey. And 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 how do you find that 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 balance now transfer into screen? Because you don't have that direct audience. So you have to kind of find it through the the lens of stuff I, I find it fascinating again i'm still very new in in the acting world but i obsess over all the all the nuances as you probably already heard from this conversation but i find it fascinating the difference between stage and screen because i was on a set a couple of years back and um i was i was at, at monitors with a friend of mine who was one of the producers and and one of the stars in it and they just re- they pointed out something i hadn't really thought about that in a play, I think Mummy actually talks about this as well. In a play, you've got to g- get your emotion across to the the, the back row of the theatre. On film, the the camera's ahead of the front row, so that's the that's the audience that you're playing to. They're that much closer. It doesn't have to be as big. It can be more personal and more intimate. I guess, yeah. How have you found those are the differences in the two as a writer and as a a performer? I mean, I've been doing TV for so much longer now and the more you get into it the sort of more addictive it it is to to embrace what you can create from film and and television and 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 also I remember even when I was writing plays people would say you should write for screen like the, the way I was constructing story or the way I was jumping from time and place and the way I just observe very small details as the as a creator just lends itself better to uh screen some writers they, they just the me that's the medium that suits them and each show i tv show i write you know you just you just you're just trying to get better i guess each show you do you learn lessons on how you it's, it's so much more than just the story it's about collaboration it's about hiring people it's about all the different steps and i actually i do like the steps of refining the story because you're you're doing one pass on the script and then when you're shooting it, that's a whole different level of storytelling. And then actually in post-production, you could, you could rewrite the story in the edit. And I quite like all those different goes. <laughs> like I like all the yeah. different sort of tries you have to try and make something decent. Yeah. Let's figure it out in the end. <laughs> yeah. um, any regular listeners to the podcast will know, I think him and her is one of the best British comedies of of all time. Oh wow! Um, thank you. Thank you. I don't like saying underrated because it's very, very rated. But it, it it's it's a show that I think it stands the test of time. We spoke earlier briefly of 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 European cinema and European cinema far more than British and American tends to be allowed to take its time and to pause mm. and to breathe. And it sounds strange to refer the that into comedy now but i think him and her was a comedy that that was allowed to have the, have those moments between you and russell where mm. the joke is building off of a look or off of a even off of a silence off of both of you going like mm. realizing why are we quiet and things like that and the, the subtleties in there were a beautiful thing so i guess how was that to work on how did that one come about and how was it to 
to do those three series. Thank I, th- you. I think it was three, wasn't it? Or the specials. Yeah. Two and the wedding. Four series altogether. Yeah. Um, I auditioned for it and I auditioned in character. I, I, I hadn't worked that much. I had a period of not working and I was, well, I think I was working in a call center in North Finchley and um, I got the script and I was like, Oh, I really, I really like the writing and went in character and stayed in character, but I got loads of recalls and I was like, Oh God, I've got to be in character. And, and then it was like, and they, they chose a scene. It was like a scene about blowjobs or something. And it was a kissing scene. They probably wouldn't do this now. And because they were trying to find the right chemistry, there was like, I was in a basement in Soho and I was just kissing and talking about blowjobs to, 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 to like 17 actors a day for several days. And in the end, my agent was like, oh, could you come back? They want to do another round. And I went, I'll only come back if you pay me 50 quid. So I got, Amazing. so I got 50, I was like, I got 50 quid to come back, kiss all these strangers and talk about blowjobs. The week, then I got the gig finally and then yeah it was a very interesting journey because like you say it was very small story some you know a whole episode could center around a broken ruler or a cd being returned by an ex-girlfriend and i like the class commentary of it that you could take two people who are on the doll and like you know just have on benefits and don't have much material material stuff or like sort of opportunity or ambition or anything like that but just really deeply love each other and make something kind of really romantic and and feel good about it and to your point about it being you know underrated to me it's like when I'm back in London or if I'm in England or wherever I'm Manchester people will look at me if they recognize me and they'll just give me a little nod and it's like it's like a little secret like if you know it you love it and I and I and I feel very close to all the fans because it's like it's just like it's like it belongs to us you know it's a nice feeling yeah i love that and i think you're completely right about the the almost the micro episodic storylines as such there will be tiny things it's like everyone always talked about seinfeld as being the show where nothing happens kind of thing and if you can write characters well enough then that can be the case like some of my favorite i always talk about a show called justified which i adored and one of the reasons i adored it was I remember an episode about three seasons in and me and my brother would always catch up about it after the episode had come out. And we realized that no storylines really progressed. They just got to a point that the characters were so well written and we knew them so well, Mm. obviously small things were happening, Mm. but there wasn't this big, here's what happened in this episode. Mm. Yet it was edge of your seat stuff because you've, you've got to know them so well. Um, Another really exciting for, thing for me with him and her i said i loved it it, when it came out and i've watched it numerous times over the years and about a year ago or or during the pandemic my partner hadn't seen it so i was like oh we'll watch it it's a good one to binge it's all quite short and i paused about halfway through an episode in absolute excitement because i'd never realized that the reading and leeds poster the reading festival poster on the wall was the year I headlined a stage at Reading. <gasps> so I, I could see my name on the oh poster. And I was like, I've never spotted this before. And I never normally have m- moments like that. But I was like, this is a show I've watched multiple times, but I'm not looking out for me in, oh my God, in, that's so in good. stuff. So yeah, it was amazingly that's exciting. so, so yeah. good. And do you know what? I stared at that poster for four years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. It, 
it came uh, to mind when you were saying about the Scroobius Pit book being in your house maybe when you that's were what was in my I've been psyche. haunting you I've yeah. been haunting you for I, so you've long you've been on every wall of my life <laughs> I love it well wow. yeah um how was it to be part of that cast as well because again it was a small cast but Russell Tovey is obviously amazing. Joe Wilkinson, Kerry Howard. It was just a really great team of people, yeah, right? We, who who seemed again, who seemed to get to get to get the characters. It wasn't a show that felt the need to introduce the characters, including you and and Russell. It mm. felt like I always say the wire felt as if they started it two episodes into the series. Wow. You put the wire on and you're like, oh, there's no, and it's the, it's, the, it's the same with him and her. You're like, oh, have I missed, have I put the wrong disc in? Because mm. it feels as if they assume we all know everyone, but that worked. It made it feel real. Well, that's a, that's a huge compliment. I think that's a, that's what you want for everything is to feel like you're being letting, you're let into the world. I know actors say this and you're always like, yeah, but what's the real story? And it was, it was just a really good group of people. We really just made each other laugh. We just, we would just laugh in between takes. We'd drive Richard Laxon, our director, mad, and Stefan Golodjewski, who wrote it. You know, it's, it's like quite, obviously, they, it's very precise storytelling. And we would also, because we were in the same space, because we never left the, the flat, you did get a bit, and it was very hot. So just mm. to like, to keep ourselves sane, we just j- joke. We became like children. It was awful. I mean, the director would be like, please, just just do your jobs and just concentrate and just say it. And Stefan was like, please, just... Do-. And we would just... We would howl. And Russell is just... The thing I love about Russell is he's such a showman. He's got so many good anecdotes. He can do impressions of everyone. Like, I know, like, I'll, like, be like, I'll do that one of your dad at the strip. Like, I know his, his family. So he's got this amazing treasure trove of anecdotes and stories and but he's also an incre- incredible audience and sometimes mm. with comics you know they they kind of switch off if someone else has got the like and he would like and he, yeah. and he would laugh at things like say so sarah tell us that story about when you're at uni you did that or the cornish pasty there's like a whole thing about this cornish pasty when i was a kid and i and i was i knew i was a foodie when i went to cornwall for the first time and and ate a Cornish pasty and it wasn't very nice. It'd been in the microwave and I just started crying. And, and my mum was like, we'll get you another Cornish pasty. It was like, and he just, just t- all the tiny little details we shared with each other over that show and just make each other laugh and, bait, and we're very badly behaved and unprofessional. I, I wonder if he's, he's running out of anecdotes because these days, from what I know, he relies on having a dog with him on set to be the... <laughs> the entertaining part so maybe the anecdotes are running thin and the cornish pasty he'll he'll have that for for another few decades trust me um well there's there's loads of things i wanted to uh, talk about but i want to kind of get a variation along the way because another show that you were in that i really enjoyed was the five and i'm a little bit obsessed with harlan coburn's writing and this was obviously a far more serious role than than him and her. How was it to work on the kind of the kind of modern murder murder mystery type story and show? Again, he seems to be able to just every single. He's, there seems to be a new one every every few months, and for some reason, I'm drawn into all of them. So, yeah, how was that to be part of? It was a really good experience for me. It was, um, I think, it was ten hours that show. So it was like it, it was. It was a full-on shoot, and we we shot in Liverpool, and I absolutely fell in love with Liverpool and the people of Liverpool. That was one of the 
big takeaways for me was like the, we, this just discovering the city and Harlan's become like a friend and mentor now and and when I was writing Ridley Road we talk about structuring suspense and and, and, mm. and secrecy and kind of his currency is secrets and how they how you kind of drip feed them to the audience and how you play with their expectations and surprise them and stuff so I'm always you know trying I'm like a magpie trying to pick up little tricks from That's storytellers nice. and his he's just the master of the twist Every show of his I watch, I feel he must have a formula, but I can't quite, right. <laughs> I can't quite dig it out because again, they're all completely different stories, completely different right. styles. Again, I love the way Netflix are doing it. That one will be f- French, one will be in Liverpool, one will be American, and so on and so forth. But yeah, that must be amazing t- to have to to build a bond with someone like that that you can kind of pick their brain on on certain approaches or techniques or when to hold back and when to, as you say, trickle alluring stuff across to the audience. Yeah. I love it. Um, Again, I could could talk to you about particular roles and things for ages, but something happened today, which you might not have seen yet as it's in UK time, but I know it's an area that you've campaigned in in the past. And in Edinburgh today, they've voted to close to remove all strip clubs from the town centre, which is a hugely dangerous and damaging thing for sex workers. Um, I know you've 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 done campaigning for sex worker rights in the past, and it's a really weird time for these things because I think in America, with Foster and Sester going through with the seeming intention of helping sex workers or making them safer and it's already in the few years it's been up and running, it's proved to do the opposite and to make to push people into the sh- sh- shadows rather than into the light as such. And I think mm-hmm. that's the case with with the closing of, of strip clubs as well, because these trades and traditions are the oldest in the world and they're not, not going anywhere. And the more we push them into either illegal areas or just out the way, the more dangerous it becomes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess what kind of drew you to, to campaign in that area and how do you feel about where we are now, I guess? Thank you for bringing this up because, yeah, like you say, this is something that is close to my heart and that I have been trying to shed light on. One of my first jobs was in the West End when I was, I think I was still at school. I just left school. I was like in the West End doing a play and I was a schoolgirl and I got like membership to Groucho Club before it was when Groucho didn't have like a payment system. Like they didn't take yeah. cash or cards and they would just tape your bill onto your dressing room door every month so imagine like a teenager being like right it's on me and I just I just ran around Soho and then I'd get a bill and then I just pay for it with my wages and it was just like discovering Soho and I met prostitute I met sex workers drug dealers I was running around in that underworld and they were like the same just so you know that's a hundred percent a show right. at some point yeah, or right. a film it's that's yeah that feels like <laughs> some of the great soho films over the years that's exactly that i love it and i met one girl who she was the same age as me and she comes from a different just a different the lottery of life just different background different economic social you know and she was a sex worker and what was odd, even though it was totally different circumstances, were, you know, we were talking about, she had, she, she danced as well. And she, we were talking about the perils of 
the job and the dodgy men we'd met and agents and managers trying to rip us off and all that kind of stuff. And she was astounded because in sex work, you always get the money first. And she was astounded that yeah. I do these jobs or like auditions where I, you know, be like asked to take my clothes off or roll around in a bed with the man I never met. And she was like, I can't believe you didn't get paid and you didn't get the money. So we, we had like a jokey French, I mean, and she went by an alias. I, I just, I don't know what's happened to her, but it always stayed with me and that vulnerability as well. And like how dangerous it was for her and what the brothel, the Soho brothels actually, they did provide safety for these women that would be on the street. And then as I got uh, older and more sort of politically active, I came across the English Collective of Prostitutes, who are an organization that campaigning for decriminalization. You see, there's a big difference between legalization, which is what you have in Nevada and Amsterdam, where the sort of council kind of becomes the pimp because it's a legalized area, but you have to have these permits and you have to have, you can only sell sex in certain areas. And if you don't sell it in those areas, it's still a crime. And then, mm. and then decriminalization, which is what they have in New Zealand, which is just, it's not a criminal activity. So you can't be arrested for it. You can't be arrested for soliciting. You can't be arrested for brothel keeping. You can't be arrested for uh, advertising, profiting. And so what that does, it, it means that our most vulnerable women, the poorest and most vulnerable women of our society, who may not have made a choice, because choice is a very loaded term when you're talking about this kind of work, but have made a decision in the circumstances they find themselves, which you or I may make if we were in similar situations those women if they are robbed or raped or attacked and they go to the police they are more likely to be arrested than they their perpetrator punished and so we have to take the criminality out of it it's a controversial issue especially like feminist circles because the idea of it is so sort of heinous to some people they're like no it it just we have to there has to be a criminal element to it so put the criminality on the men i've been when i've been doing my campaign work i've been to brothels and i've opened the door on these men and i've talked to sex workers and it's hard enough it's hard enough for them if they had the police as allies when a, when a serial killer as we saw with peter sutcliffe you know when a serial killer attacks is more likely to strike sex workers first really they're our first offense on very very dangerous men so that they should be working with the police to report these men um so that we can keep them safe and we can keep ourselves safe it makes absolutely no sense Uh, that we punish them for already having very vulnerable lives. I completely agree. And I think so many of the things that I try to think positively and believe are done with the best intentions, as you say, to try and protect these women or try and do this and do that, end up putting them at at greater risk. As you say, the criminalisation of it means that they either can't report these crimes to the police or if they do, it gets ignored. But similarly with the Foster and and Sester, changes in america that closed down all the online kind of back page websites it's simply meant that these women had to go back essentially to to street corners and whatnot whereas the online ways provided a level of vetting a level of 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 checking you could have an extended Mm. conversation you could ask other people have do you know this person Mm. is this person safe is are they a good person and you can pick and choose whereas if you're standing on a street corner and someone's pulled up in a car 
because of the laws as well, you've got a few seconds to make a decision on if this is right. a safe situation right. or not safe situation. And that puts people in so much risk. Exactly. And even the curb crawling laws. So to make it illegal to curb crawl means that a sex worker, her uh, risk assessment time. Mm. So in the time that she's open, you know, the window's down and she's looking in the car, she's seeing, is there another man in that back seat? Is this guy mm. drunk? Can I see a weapon? All that risk assessment time has gone because it's because he will be arrested for crowd crawling. So she jumps in. So she jumps in and she's at further risk. So it's just about a dialogue with sex workers, not not um, ex-sex workers who are campaigning for criminalization because they're not in the profession. And there's obviously a lot of trauma and a lot of shame and a lot of stigma. But for the women I work, uh, the women I know who work in this in this field, I just, I've never heard a good argument why you wouldn't help by decriminalizing. I, I really, yeah. I really haven't. I think that's absolutely the key, talking to people in that world right. and in that industry and not simply to the one that confirms your confirmation bias, which is all all too common. The, the kind of outlier, if it may be, as you say, an ex-sex worker or someone who's left it because of trauma, speaking to people who are still in that world and live in that world and let them have a say in this and hear their views right. on the and the, on the, subject. the the stigma you see it's still and this is what really fascinates me is the stigma we can't underestimate how powerful and destructive that is so if you are a former sex worker you know you can never work with children even though 70 percent of sex workers are mothers so actually mm. their work and they're trying to feed their kids so there's this maternal this maternal urge has 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 got them to this place so that they can provide for their kids and then they then they can't leave because they have a record so yeah i'm hoping that we can make progress and it's three laws which should be taken out, um, which would save a lot of police yeah. resources. I don't think a lot of police want to be making these arrests. It also, it also, there's a lot of deportations. Uh, a lot of women, um, migrant women, are targeted, and a lot of confusion on trafficking laws and control for gain and women who are who are sex workers. There's a lot of it's a lot of grey area. You've you've touched upon it there as well, though that it's. It's a societal perspective change that's also required and and a view and that comes hand in hand with the laws. The easy example is it's all written in the history books when slavery was abolished, but that's not when it suddenly became easy for black people in America and, Mm -hmm. and all around the world. It was there was still loads of societal change that needed to come. And anything that has a, a, a particular preconception within society the laws need to change but also the way it's presented needs to change our outlook at it I've, I've got a friend who trained to be a nurse and it was only when she got her qualification and was getting a placement that they realized that she was a former um glamour model so not a full service sex worker or anything like that but a, a glamour model and they decided it was was too dangerous for her to work there because she's been in the sex industry mm. and is a public figure or whatever else and was told that she couldn't work there. It's like, this is someone who's stopped doing that a long time ago. And as the, the NHS always needs good, good nurses and was being turned away because of that societal stigma mm. around, Oh, you've, you've been naked at some point. Wow. That's, that's outrageous. Um, wow. Well, to, to wrap things up, I want to kind of ask what's ahead. A lot of people, particularly during the pandemic, 
Demick had a moment because again, I say this all the time, but we're in an industry that doesn't generally acknowledge the idea of time off, the idea of family, <laughs> the idea of all of these other things. And the pandemic kind of forced a bit of that. So I think a lot of people in our industry were given some perspective on what they want to do, the projects that they want to do, the type of work they want to do in the future, rather than, as you were saying earlier at the beginning of your career, where you're very much, oh, anything that comes along, you're kind of, right. I know I'm certainly in the process of, I'm honoured to be asked. And then right. you kind of don't have that worth on yourself of going, right, no, is this the kind of thing I want to do? Or am I just, I've not had an audition for a few weeks. I need to yeah. to jump on anything. So has it given you any pause for thought? And what is the kind of thought going forward of what you want to be, be doing next? Yeah, I mean, well, I had, in writing Ridley Road, I like had a kind of self-imposed lockdown where I didn't leave the house for a year and I just wrote it. And then, and then I was like, oh, no, and then send, and like, let's party. And I was ready to like, <laughs> come to just travel. And, and then it happened. And then, I mean, me and Steve wrote Chivalry pretty much throughout lockdown. So my, my life, compared to a lot of people who, you know, had devastating loss in so many different ways, uh, my life, my daily life, it was challenging because I had the California, the schools in California closed for a year. So I had, my kids at home and I was trying to write and look after them at the same time, which was, which was quite brutal. But now I'm, I'm in a very privileged place where I do just do projects that I really care about, that I can dedicate years to, because it is years of your life that you're investing in and not just making it, but pushing to make a space for it, especially if it's work that isn't quite what the market or audiences are used to. You have to like really fight and explain to people why this is the thing that they need to make. And so I've crafted a life where I can really look after my children and, you know, I, I don't have a nanny and I take them to school and I pick them up and I cook dinner and put them to bed and then I'm writing. Um, so it's quite, it's, 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 a, it's a quite a simple, calm, grounded life, which allows me, going back to like imaginative capacity, really allows me to, to think very big and bold and, and run with some of my creative creative ideas and, and see them through. So it's, it's a good time for me, I have to say. I love that. I'm excited f- for all that's ahead. And I appreciate you taking the time today. I'm so glad we got to talk in the end. Yes. Um, and it's been wonderful. Me too. Thank you for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I always say it, man, but it's there's an extra joy when it's... Obviously, I love chatting to my pals like Kay last week and numerous others over the years. Tom, Tom Davis recently, Seeper a few times recently. But it really is a buzz when... It's someone that you're a fan of, but you've not met. And then it just flows really easily and nicely and you have a really good chat. And it's really, I don't know, there's a real buzz about that. I really enjoy those ones. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'll be back next week. I'm going to give you two episodes next week and they're both cracking. I'm just feeling generous, you know. So uh, there'll be a Wednesday and I reckon a Friday to wind the month out, to see the month out, to wind the month down is the phrase I'm looking for. 
head over to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pipio if you want to hang out and chat and ask me questions. I'm on there fairly regularly at all sorts of times, so pop along. And uh, yeah, I'll see you all next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta!